I am excited to share with you this morning from 1 John chapter 1. We are going to see a few themes that are laid out today that are going to carry us on through the rest of the book. So, um, John was probably around 90 years old when he wrote this. And uh, if we think back in John's life, he was called to Jesus' ministry very early on. So he would have been a younger boy called into the ministry, and he would have actually walked with Jesus during Jesus' early ministry. Um, When Jesus ascended, he would have walked with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this old man now of around 90 years has been walking with Jesus for almost his entire life. It's, It's also thought that most if not all of the disciples that John walked with, have been martyred at this point. So they have died in service to Jesus, and John is kind of like the last man standing. So as we move into this, keep that in the back of your mind, uh, where John is coming from as he writes this. So starting in verse 1, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon," And our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John starts his epistle here in a very similar way that he starts his gospel. So in John 1.1, he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So he's taking this idea of the word being at the beginning and that word being Christ. So we see in the beginning was the word, the first part of John. And in 1 John, he says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. And then he says, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that that eternal life, which was with the Father, pointing back to the beginning when Jesus and the Father were together, um, and was manifested to us. So we see this idea of Jesus being one with God and being eternal in that nature all the way back in Micah 5.2. That says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So again, back in the Old Testament, we have this same theme of Jesus being everlasting with the Father. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declared to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John is trying to convey the physical aspects of his time with Jesus. Um, This is speaking to really the bodily appearance of Christ on the earth. So even in these first two verses, John hits on the deity of Christ and the manhood of Christ, which are two very pivotal 
ideas to us as Christians. And I'm going to continue reading on, and then we're going to revisit that idea of a bodily Christ. So in verse 3, it's going to be a continuation of the thought which was laid out in verse 1. So I'm going to read verse 1 straight into verse 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. So verse 3, that's a continuation of verse 1, and... um, I am going to read verse 3 in the Weist, and it gives us a better idea of the tenses that are used in the original Greek language. And that's very helpful when decoding kind of what John is trying to tell us. Verse 3 in the Weist reads, That which we have seen with discernment and at present is in our mind's eye, And that which we have heard and at present is ringing in our ears. We are reporting also to you in order that, as for you also, you may be participating jointly in common with us in our firsthand knowledge of the life of our Lord. And the fellowship indeed, which is ours, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So you'll notice that the verbs John is using in verse 3 are in the present perfect tense. That means that they have been occurring and they are still occurring. So when he says, I have seen with my mind's eye, um, he's saying that he saw Jesus while Jesus was still on this earth. And even to the present, when he's an old man writing this down, those things which he had seen are still playing back in his mind. It's ingrained in there those things which Jesus had said to them are still ringing in his ears. So we get the sense that this physical experience that John had with Jesus was extremely important to him, and it impressed upon him to the point where he still recalls those things as if they're still happening. Verse 4 gives us the reason that John is writing this. He says, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And we are appointed to joy as Christians. Um, That's not to say that there's not going to be challenges and hardships, because we are also promised that that is going to be the case. But we are appointed to joy. And it's, it's somewhat inconsistent to say, and we'll get into this a little bit later as well, but to say, oh, I've been really in my word this week. Like, I've, I've been doing good. I've been having fellowship with God. But I just feel a little bit down. I'm not, not quite lifted up. And that's not consistent with what we see here. Um, our joy is to be full. And uh, in verse 5, John says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So, my whole life, I grew up in Allen, 
I don't know if everyone is aware of that, but when I was growing up with my family, um, I spent a lot of time around them, okay? And I would start to pick up these little idiosyncrasies from my dad, from my mom, and then I would start to act more like them because I spent so much time around them, okay? And then when I moved to Tarleton, to Stephenville, to go to school, I wasn't spending as much time in fellowship with them. So those idiosyncrasies that I had developed earlier in life began to kind of fade out. And I wouldn't notice them as much. In fact, I'd notice myself um, exuding more of those people that I placed myself around. So that's kind of an illustration to uh, relate back here when he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we are walking in the light that is Jesus Christ, then the darkness cannot stand the light. If Light and dark are diametrically opposed to one another. They can't exist in the same place. Because if you think about what darkness is, it, it is only the absence of light. There's no substance to it at all. So if you're trying to hide from someone and you go into a room that's completely blacked out, you're using the darkness to conceal yourself, okay? And then somebody comes in looking for you and they can't find you because you're in the dark. Well, what if they have a flashlight? Flip the flashlight on and then all of a sudden you're completely exposed, that's this idea of darkness and light. Where there is light, there cannot be a darkness. And uh, David talks about this a little bit when he is trying to conceal his sin. And we actually looked at this last week in youth uh, from Psalm 32. Uh, he describes what he feels when he tries to conceal his sin in the dark as like a drought of summer. So he describes this dearth that is within him and the agony when he tries to conceal something. But when he lets it out into the light and asks for forgiveness, the light of Christ shone on him and he describes it the complete opposite. He actually uses a word that we would kind of relate to moisture. So it goes from being a darkness and a drought to light and moisture. And that is a beautiful picture of this light that John is talking about. Uh, actually, in Psalm 139.23, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. He's asking God to shine his light on his life and expose those things which he has tried to conceal in the dark. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So again, I, I want to read this in the Weast, and we are going to focus in on verse 7 here. And we're going to see the same idea of the present perfect tense coming in to kind of give a little more light to this passage. Verse 7, 
But if within the sphere of the light we are habitually ordering our behavior as he himself is in the light, things in common and thus fellowship we, the believer and God, are having with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son keeps continually cleansing us from every sin. It's not something that only happened when he died on the cross. It is true that it was finished when he died. Our sins were paid for. But that payment keeps on recurring. So we are being continually cleansed from our past sins, our present sins, and we are promised that we will be cleansed if we ask for our future sins. This word that we see translated as cleanses is in the Greek katharizo, and this will remind us of the word, our word, catheritize, catheterize. Um, it's, it's in the sense of releasing a toxin. So if you can't get a toxin out of you, you can be catheterized and it will release it for you. That's the idea of this word cleanses. It releases this toxin that is naturally within us and only by the blood of Christ. I want to back up just a little ways. Uh, We were talking about the physicality of Christ, and specifically verses 1 through 4, I want to look at as a reaction to one of the teachings of John's day. So it was gaining popularity at this time, and this school of thought, we will say, is called Gnosticism. And we see this popping up at this time, and I do think that John was writing as a reaction to this teaching. Um, Gnosis means knowledge. So the Gnostics taught that the pursuit of knowledge was what actually saved you. Thankfully, for me, <laughs> that is not the case. And we see in Ephesians 2, 8-9, through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not your pursuit of knowledge. It's not your, your doing. It's a free gift. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, Gnosticism, along with teaching that knowledge provided salvation, taught that the spirit was good and the flesh, the body, was evil. And the body was not redeemable. So what did this do? It produced basically a bunch of party animals. Okay? They would go out and they would live however they wanted to because their flesh was already corrupted. They couldn't redeem their flesh, so we might as well have fun with it, right? Well, that is not the case, and um, John is writing to combat this idea. Now, since all flesh is evil, that would mean that if Jesus came down in the flesh, that Jesus would not be the holy Son of God that they say he is. Well, the Gnostics taught that Jesus did not come in the flesh. He was only on the earth as a spirit. In fact, there's a tall tale that says someone saw Jesus walking in the shores and not leaving any footprints. 
That's not true, okay? Jesus was here in the flesh, and we see that in John's epistle. So, um, if Jesus did come down uh, in the Spirit only and did not share communion with us and share in our struggles, um, he would not be a proper substitute for us, for our sins. And I'm going to read a few verses, verses from Hebrews 2. And while I'm reading this, I want you to try to grasp the bigger picture, the, the overarching idea of this small passage. Starting in Hebrews 2.14, it says, Inasmuch then as children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, saying that he shared in our flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, 16, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered. Being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted." So we see that Jesus shared in the flesh and blood and was tempted in all the same ways that we are tempted, which makes him an adequate substitute and the perfect high priest to intercede between us and the Father. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 27, uh, Jesus is in his glorified body, and has reappeared to his disciples after the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And he says to Thomas, who is known as Doubting Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Again, another account of the physicality of Jesus' body on earth. And I can't imagine... Like John is saying, just gazing upon Jesus and understanding the implications of that. Understanding that you are gazing upon the Father. Um, it says that Jesus was representative of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So having that realization as one of his disciples gazing upon him. If Jesus patted you on the back and said, nice job, that was the Father reaching down into our world and interacting with us. Let's read verse 7 again and then continuing through 8. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. Again, continually cleanses us. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So there are some people who call themselves Christians today, and they profess that Jesus is not the only way. They profess that if you're following your conscience, 
then that somehow is going to get you to eternal communion with the Father. That's not the case. <laughs> um, we see in verse 8, if we, see, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So um, if we were not sinners, if that was not our natural tendency, then the blood of Jesus Christ would not be necessary to buy us back. And thus, when Jesus is praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his crucifixion, he asks that the cup, the cup of his suffering that he knows he is about to drink of, would be taken from him. The Father says, no, this is the only way. You have to go through with this. And, of course, Jesus knew that, but was still suffering. It says he sweated great drops of blood. And um, that speaks to the agony that he was suffering as he was leading up to what he knew was coming. Um, Another example of his human physicality on the earth. And... If we don't sin, then that was not necessary, and God could have taken that cup of suffering from him. But it was necessary, because each one of us are sinners. Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is why we need the blood of Christ to cover us, to atone for our sins. Verse 9, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There we see that word catharizo again in cleanse. Okay, he's draining the toxin from us. And uh, we also actually talked about uh, this in youth last week. And it's going back to that Psalm 32 passage that I referenced earlier when David was talking about his drought and um, the freeing that confessing his sins afforded him. And David was not questioning if God would forgive his sins or not. He understood and he knew that God would forgive his sins as soon as he confessed them and repented of them. So we have the same idea right here. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to read a quote from A.W. Tozer. And this is, it is actually my favorite quote from A.W. Tozer. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time, and I think you'll see why. But it definitely relates to uh, verse 9. It says, What shall we do is the deep heart cry of every man who suddenly realizes that he is an usurper and sits on a stolen throne. When we place ourselves on the throne of God that is rightfully his, we take that throne from him. However painful, it is precisely this acute moral consternation that produces true repentance and makes a robust Christian after the penitent has been dethroned and has found forgiveness and peace through the gospel. So 
all this is saying is that it takes a broken man to fully receive the gospel. Because if we were not broken, the gospel would be diminished to where it could not take effect in our lives. So when we realize that we are sinners and we're dark on the inside, um, that is the perfect condition for the gospel to come in and take control of our lives. Um, it, it cannot take hold in something that doesn't think that it needs Jesus, if that makes sense. Um, and the realization that I could never measure up to God's standard of righteousness is exactly what afforded the gospel to take hold in my own heart. Um, it's that realization that everyone has to come to. And, you know, these teachers who say that, oh, you're, you're good, there's, there's light in you, okay? There's not light in us. There's light in him. There's darkness in us. And we'll see later in 1 John that he expounds on this idea of light and dark. And he says that the, the world does not understand the light because there's not light in the world. The world only understands darkness. And we are not to be of the darkness, but be of the light. Um, if I could measure up to God's standards of my own volition, then I don't have a thirst for the gospel. There's no need for it. Um, but since we do realize that we're sinners and we have to create that condition in our heart for the gospel to take effect, then we realize um, what Jesus has done and the gravity of that. Um, the gravity of that can change any life that it interacts with. So I would encourage you this morning, if you came in here and you don't know that light, that is Jesus Christ. If you are in the darkness, shine the light. Um, it's available for you, and anyone can take it. It's not something that you can do on your own, and the eternal communion with the Father is only accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you have any questions about that as we wrap up, come see me up here. I'd love to answer any questions. Uh, just pray for you, talk about it. But don't leave here the same as you came in. Take care of what you need to take care of while you're here. There's no better time to do that. Thank mm-hmm. you.